0: There, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 148 of the ugly American werewolf in London rock podcast brought to you by me, your host Mac B the wolf, and I will be joined par usual by my friend a cohort co-host and partner in crime gary action jackson from the east coast of the united states of america and long time listeners know that we are into hard rock classic rock prog rock heavy metal early mtv and more and since i lived in the uk we do a lot of dichotomy over how some bands make it big on one side of the pond but not so much on the other and it can go either way it could even be british bands who make it in america but not so big in the uk it's just there's different cultures there's different timing and you never know when something might hit in one place but maybe not so much in the other and today we're going to review an album it might come as a little bit of a surprise because it's not really hard rock it's not prog rock it's not heavy metal they were on mtv and they're not really an english band or an american band it's an amalgamation of them in fact it's a super group that nobody saw coming And that's the traveling Wilburys, made up of the Beatles' George Harrison, the legendary Bob Dylan, the extraordinary Roy Orbison, ELO's Jeff Lynne, and Tom Petty. I guess they were all friends. George wanted to work again, and they figured out a way to put together this extraordinary record. Probably did better in the U.S. than it did in the U.K., But it did well all around the world, really. Part of that's thanks to MTV. But I'll admit that we recorded this in the summer. We recorded it a ways back. And we've been doing so much heavy metal and hard rock stuff. I kind of wanted to break. I said, Jackson, how about we do the Traveling Wilburys' first album? He was kind of like, huh? You want to do what now? But I have very fond memories of this. I remember listening to this on the radio, seeing it on MTV. And even though I was a rebellious teenager and wanted to listen to hard rock and heavy metal, it was something that my mother liked. So it was something we could have in common. Like we're in the car, we don't have to fight over the radio when this comes on. It's like, oh, okay, this is great. Because the pedigree of the people in this band is extraordinary. And it really kind of kicked off an amazing run of creativity for all the members of the band. A lot of success, a lot of fun that they had in the ensuing years. And I think that being a part of this Traveling Wilburys band was huge for all of them. And so I thought it would be a fun one to discuss here on the show. Now, before we get into it, got to take care of a little bit of business. As usual, we love to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family. It's a network of about a 100 different shows, music related, not all rock and roll. There really is something in there for everyone. And you can check out more about them at PantheonPodcast.com or follow at PantheonPods. And of course, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com, based in the UK, doing this for 40 years, folks. They have over of a quarter of a million items in stock. They've got LPs, singles, CDs, posters, tour programs, ticket stubs, signed memorabilia, stuff from all over the world, things that you won't find at your local record store. And if you go to rarevinyl.com and use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, when you check out, you can save 10% off your orders. Now, that's a one-time discount. So don't just go in and buy a $6 CD. Go buy a treasure. Go buy something that's hard to find, something that you love, that's in great condition. Use the code UGLY, save a big 10%, and they will ship it to you anywhere around the world. Doesn't matter if you're in Austria or Australia, rarevinyl.com will get it to you in good shape. So use the code UGLY, save 10% at rarevinyl.com. Now, back to the Wilburys, you know, George Harrison, he had had success on a Cloud Nine album, and that was produced by Jeff Lynn of ELO fame. And he had so much fun. It's like, well, maybe we could do something with some other big time singers. And I think George wanted to do something with Bob Dylan. I think jeff wanted to do something with roy orbison so they figure hey let's get them all together and george had recently befriended tom petty of course tom petty and the heartbreakers had recently toured with bob dylan so they all kind of knew each other there's kind of this confluence coming together really i think spearheaded by george and his partner in crime jeff and you can just hear that they're having some fun on this album which to jaded old rock stars who've dealt with the pains of the record business and record executives, and A&R people, and to kind of have a little autonomy to go out and do something on their own, have some fun. I think it was a big deal for all of them. I think it changed their perspective in a way. And the success that followed, not only from this album, but what they all did in the ensuing years, this was the catalyst. This was very important to them. So I know it's a little bit different, but I think you'll like it. We're going to go over Traveling Willberries Volume 1, Track by Track, here on The Wolf.
1: After weeks of hard rock and heavy metal. Correct. Thought it might be fun to take a break from some of that. Man cannot live on heavy metal alone. (laughs) Although I know there's some people who fight, but honestly, it's an important part of our lives, but it's not the only part of our lives. I said, all right, well let's try to mix it up a little bit. What else what other albums are having some big anniversaries? that we might be interested in talking about. And then I just kind of going through a few lists, I just happened to find The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1, is coming up on its 35th anniversary. I'm like, you know what? This is a fun album. I remember having this back in the day, obviously a huge supergroup, and we just watched that Tom Petty documentary on Wildflowers, which came out, what, five years after, after this album did. I thought, well, this will be fun, because it blends so many different styles. It was something that I had, and we listened to maybe a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit in college. And so I said, all right, Jackson, let's do Traveling Wilburys. And your reaction was, all
2: right. (laughs) (laughs) It was was a little bit, I don't want to say, it was a surprising suggestion. Let me put it to you that way, because I... kind of not that I forgot about this but like I ne- I didn't never spend a lot of time with this record they had a couple of big hits off of this that I remember but the rest of the album really isn't like the the stuff that you heard on the radio which I was pleasantly surprised about
1: yeah i mean that's the thing obviously yes they had two big hits that they had big mtv produced videos for and honestly volume three did have the same thing had a few more however on volume three i'm not sure that they picked the right songs as singles there's some great songs on that one that that never hit the singles chart whereas this one i mean the two big ones which is handled with care and end of line the first and last songs on the album fairly big hits in the u.s the album itself went triple platinum in the US, even went platinum in the UK, uh, and did well in Canada and Australia and stuff like that. But they there were some songs that did okay on like adult contemporary radio lists, or maybe got some good airplay time, but they weren't really big hits. And just the blending of all these musical styles. I mean, Bob Dylan is obviously very different from Roy Orbison, who is very different from, say, George Harrison. You know, Tom Petty kind of has his own thing going, and Jeff Lynn produces it all, right? He's kind of mm-hmm. the multi-instrumentalist and we got to talk about how all these guys came together but this time from like 87 to 92 or so saw all these guys really kind of blow up and i think a lot of it has to do with this collaboration that they all got into
2: that's what i was thinking about i mean it because while tom petty would go on to do full moon fever and you know into the great wide open and wildflowers like we were talking about I mean, at this point in time, this was kind of a weird in-between section for a lot of these guys, including Bob Dylan. Like he was around, but like that he was yet to put out that "Oh Mercy" record that right. was big. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think, like for for people like us in that age group, like it, this record really kind of introduced us to a lot of the, or maybe reintroduced these guys to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, at this point, we're fifteen or so. And we love Van Halen, and and we're starting to get into, you know, super guitar heroes. Obviously, Zeppelin was big for us, starting to get into Rush and stuff like this. But then, and and I've been been abandoning pop music for a few years now, just knowing Mm. that just what they play on the radio isn't all great. What MTV is pushing isn't always awesome. So I I need to go out and find other music somehow. And it's when I started to get into like Police Back catalog and Stones Back catalog and things like that. But this one was, you know, came out pop and was something my mother liked and i liked it too you know uh because tom petty was obviously tom petty had been big don't come around here no more had been a big hit for him though i yeah. didn't love it it was a big video for him and of course the guy who helped write that song dave stewart played a role in getting the willberries together because mm-hmm. they went to dave's kitchen all five of them <laughs> <with> acoustic <laughs> guitars and, and jammed out here there's video of that and like who's kitchen that well that's Dave Stewart's not even in the band he didn't even produce this but it was i guess it came from george made it kind of a comeback album 87 with cloud nine mm-hmm. jeff lynn produced it had the big song got my mind set on you that was a big one and so they started to kind of patch a plan in early 87s like why don't we make a group of people we just really like people we really want to be with and that kind of thing and, and george brought up bob dylan and jeff brought up Roy orbison so they start thinking about that meanwhile dylan was on tour with tom petty and the heartbreakers basically tom and the heartbreakers were his backing band for you know which is kind of amazing if you think about it but that's yeah. exactly what it was and they did europe like that and i guess at the end of the tour you know they go to a party or something like that it's tom's birthday and dylan introduces him to george harrison and like Ringo, you know and tom even there's a great documentary that martin scorsese did and it's like you know i kind of got all these new friends and I was kind of off on my own new adventure. Right? So then it kind of became, all right, they just kind of asked Roy to join. And they, you know, they said, let's let's make some of these songs and do something with it. And I also think it was born out of, they needed a B-side for a Harrison track. Mm-hmm. And then, it, I don't know if it was End of the Line, it was one of those. Basically, the director was like, this is too good to be a B-side on the <laughs> solo well. And it's like, okay, yeah, we'll go in and do an album. And that's kind of where it started. In LA, because that's
2: where everyone had a place Yeah, and it was an interesting concept To think that at that point in time George Harrison was kind of sick of being a solo artist He wanted a band around him He wanted to write songs with guys Who were his contemporaries And put something out that he was a part of Instead of having to do everything on his own Um, And especially guys like this like I guess he was a big fanboy of Roy Orbison Who was kind of an odd duck In the rock and roll pantheon of you know the original guys. He's kind of a he's kind of nerdy looking. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very he was very soft spoken. He wrote songs about like heartache and pain, and not like you know all the girls I've loved before. Yeah. Right. Huge huge influence on like Bruce Springsteen. Yep. Yeah. And uh I think he even introduced. I think Springsteen introduced him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But yeah, and a dude who was when he, when did he die? He was fifty two when he died. So that he was late forties, early fifties when he was doing this could still sing oh yeah extremely well
1: yeah no doubt no. and i think you're right i think he was a huge influence on everyone who mm-hmm. became artists in the 60s everyone loved roy Orbison. He still had that beautiful voice but you're right i mean it was a bunch of mellow ballads for the most part you know and like elvis went on to be huge and jerry lewis carl perkins whoever you want to throw in there and then boy you know he once the beatles <laughs> Ironically, and Dylan came along (laughs) you know I think he hadn't had a hit since like the mid 60s so he kind of plodded along just kind of doing his old hits and and playing where he wanted to and and that kind of thing I think out of all the guys he was the one who was the most excited about the success of this album because he really hadn't had anything in in a couple of decades whereas Mm -hmm. Dylan you know he got big in the 70s and he kind of went away he did his Christian music He came back in the 80s to do some good albums. They didn't really get huge. Obviously, Tom and the Heartbreakers were big at the beginning of the 80s. By the late 80s, they were kind of trailing. And George was, he shunned the light. I mean, he didn't ever want to work. And he made an album in, what, 81 or 82 or something like that that wasn't huge. So, and obviously, ELO hadn't been together for a while. So, I don't know. It was just this convergence of all this talent. And I think what also made it really work, Jackson, is they checked their egos at the door. They didn't, you know. Say, this is my song, you're going to do it my way. They all just kind of said, all right, we're going to get to do this and
2: see what happens. Yeah, they had a uh, like about a 20 or 25 minute video. I don't know what it was what it was included with but it showed part of the recording thing like you were saying they showed them in dave stewart's kitchen and yet that's what it looked like it looked like they would just kind of sit around and collaborate some of it was you know you sing this part see if see if it works somebody else sings it, see who sounds better so yeah it really seemed like they were there to work together and not kind of step all over each other although it's interesting because jeff lynn was a fan of the beatles and i'm sure as was tom petty And, you know, then you've got Harrison, who was a fan of Orbison. So everybody's a fanboy of somebody in this room. That's right. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. And it looked like they really did take each other's advice. Now, Mm -hmm. the songs are all credited to the traveling wheel However, if you dig in and see which publishing company the songs went to, you can kind of tell who who wrote them. And sometimes you can kind of tell anyway. I, I feel like the George Harrison songs really stick out because... They're kind of bright and cheery and have those chord progressions <laughs> that you're used to. You can kind of tell the Dylan stuff because not only is he a lead on it, but, you know, it kind of has that Dylan-esque storytelling about it. So you can kind of tell who wrote which ones. But it, it, like you said on that video, which eventually they put out like a Wilburys collection, which had the first two albums, plus some singles and some unreleased stuff that they didn't put out, plus a video. And I think George put together the video for a record company people. I don't know if he ever intended it to go out to the public or not. but I mean you can see him in the studio. And Jeff Lynn is like giving Dylan some direction, you know, when he's in the in the box doing his vocals. And George's like, or, or, let's try this. And Bob's like, Yeah, look, 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 look your way, you know. <laughs> so and that's a guy who doesn't really like to take a whole lot of direction, as mm-hmm. you know. But I think there is so much mutual respect here jeff and george did do the producing with jeff basically being the engineer on
2: yeah and i didn't realize that i knew that uh jeff had produced tom petty a lot i didn't realize that he was working on he worked on the cloud nine record and then he would go on to work with pretty much all the rest of these dudes in some capacity uh and we've talked about this before really when you talk about jeff lynn he's more of the in the production side then i mean elo had hits but i mean really if you that his contribution to rock and roll was more on the production side
1: yeah and when they put elo in the rock and roll hall of fame i was a little surprised because they were they were pushing to put chic in the hall of fame all those years because mm-hmm. now Rogers deserves to be in the rock and roll hall of fame for all his work as a songwriter and a producer not to mention the, the song team david g and they couldn't get in and couldn't get in and they kind of made a special thing like you know special contributor Nile Rogers or something like that. And I said, mm-hmm. That's that's what they ought to do for Jeff Lynn. I don't know that Elo is really a rock and roll Hall of Fame band. But Jeff Lynn is a rock and roll hall of famer, thanks to what he did in ELO and as a producer later on all that. And then they went ahead and let ELO in anyway. I kinda I thought that smacked of racism, but we're not gonna get into that <laughs> right
2: now. It's a whole different show.
1: Yeah, it's a different show altogether. But they, they all love this so much that, you know, they all worked on, uh, except for Dylan, Roy Orbison's Mystery Girl, which is kind of his comeback album, which we'll talk mm. a little bit about here later. But yeah, they all worked together on a full moon fever with Harrison contributing some and, and obviously Jeff Lynn doing the production. There's a song that George did called Cheer Down, which I'm fairly certain ended up on the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack. you got to hear it in the credits at the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's George Harrison. Well, it turns out, you know, he and Jeff and Tom wrote that together as they did. And, and then Jeff and Tom wrote You Got It, which is Roy's big hit on mm-hmm. Mystery Girl with Roy. You know, Harrison contributed to Dylan's Under the Red Sky album, which came out in 1990. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden they're all kind of hot together.
2: Yeah and it's interesting how the uh this collaboration permeated through it, the albums that you just mentioned so yeah i mean it definitely seemed like they did like working together they really thought of themselves as compatriots and it, it valued members of the songwriting process I mean, yeah. yeah so i mean it's just i think once you get rolling it's just you you realize that yeah this this guy's on the same page like we can we can uh, put things together. Like there was one of these things, one of the tracks that Dylan sings lead on, I don't remember what it was, but he was in the recording booth and he's got his little notebook with him. And they're like, yeah, he writes really small. Like you can't even really see what he's, you know, the the deal on there. And he's changing up the lyrics there and they're watching, you know, giving him the thumbs up. Like, yeah, he'll change one line. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one thing that really came through as far as like, Dylan doesn't have the greatest voice in the world, but he can write Lyrics. oh my god that's his deal it's like it's just like yeah like how did you come up with that like one once one phrase or one line that just it, you just nailed it every single time
1: yeah I mean his talent is not as a singer his talent is as a songwriter and obviously so many people have covered his stuff and sometimes they make it a lot better obviously Jimi Hendrix with all along the watchtower and jumps yeah. down immediately but there's a heck of a lot of songs like that you know and then you know they worked on Dylan's 30th anniversary celebration Christmas all over, which is, I love that Tom Petty and Heartbreakers Christmas song. A lot of the rock and roll Christmas songs get old to me. I guess, <laughs> guess who worked on that? Well, it was Jeff Lynn, you know, right? And when the Beatles released Free as a Bird, who helped produce that? Well, it was Jeff Lynn, you know, when they had a Roy Orbison post album like to do, it was Jeff Lynn, you know, so he's, he's all over the place here. And I really like his voice.
2: Yeah, it's. I think, I think part of it is is that it's it's kind of it's not super dynamic. Like he's got he's got a box that he fits in, but especially in this context, he, he goes along really well with everybody else's. And on Dylan's stuff, he can't sing other stuff, but he can sing Bob Dylan's stuff really well. It's like Keith, you know, like Keith yeah. doesn't have the greatest voice, but he he on his songs, he sounds fantastic.
1: yeah, you know, so and I think this really invigorated George to be like, okay, is I don't have to do it. The way where yeah, everything just says George Harrison, it's all mm-hmm. on me. I, I can be more collaborative. I don't have to be this precious Beatle in his own little box somewhere. And, I can be and, part of something again.
2: Yeah. And to me on this record, it really kind of hammered home how his voice really is synonymous with rock and roll also. Like I know John Lennon Okay, and we know Paul McCartney. We Those were the two guys in the Beatles who did the big stuff or the, the bulk of it. But when Harrison sings, you're like, yeah, his his voice is pretty, it it can go toe to toe with those guys. And the harmonies between all of them, kind of throughout all of these songs, really, Mm -hmm. is pretty magical. Yeah. It's, it's pretty special. Yeah. They, they fit in very well together. The only one I will say that, that kind of doesn't is Orbison, but only because it's like his is so much more different and more powerful than the rest of them. It's kind of hard. Sick, to yeah. almost, it's almost kind of hard to contain that one voice.
1: Yeah, it's true. And that's why they give him some good lead breaks on, yeah. on a lot of these songs. When we talk about checking their egos at the door, you know, there's kind of a story where, where George says, look, we all know you're Bob, though. But we're going to treat you like we treat everybody else, you know and bob actually kind of pushed back up and said hey you know i'm i'm in awe of you you guys don't need to be in awe i'm a, especially Boyd, and i'm sure to some degree dork it's like you know it'll, it'll work the same way but they they really kind of had to work around dylan's touring schedule because at that point dylan was kind of touring relentlessly and still cranking out albums and so you know they, they kind of had to fit in with him i feel like uh but it was like all the rest of them seemed to, you know, they're mostly L.A. guys. I mean, I think Bob had a place in Malibu, and they may have used his studio and their some stuff. But I feel like the other four guys kind of
2: all got along, and Dylan's kind of the outlaw. Which would make sense, but it, I mean, it seemed to all come together. And uh, like you said, it seemed like no, I mean, I'm sure they had disagreements, whatever, but it really seemed like they enjoyed being part of something that was bigger than just one person. Yeah, and
1: apparently they bonded over like each. Monty Python sketches. Of course, you know, George knows those guys really well. He financed their films, you know, he, he buddies with all of them. Yeah. But but it was like amazing how Roy, even Roy, you see, when that's the generation behind him. Maybe you would catch on to all that. He can recite a whole skit, you know, and it was like they're amazing. Yeah. Like Roy knows these things like sign and out. It's unbelievable. But in another throw, to kind of dampened down their egos. They all gave themselves pseudonyms for the record. So, like George was Nelson Wilbury and Lynn uh, was Otis Wilbury Uh, and Tom being the younger one, he was Charlie T. Wilbury Jr. You know, Roy was Lefty and and Bob was Lefty. And then for volume three, they changed their names again, you know, and Mm -hmm. Jim Keltner, who played the drums, who was George Harrison's longtime confidant and, and bandmate in his solo albums. In fact, when George had to become a solo artist and then create a fan club, he basically made it to Jim Keltner you know, it's like send a self undressed elephant instead of a self addressed envelope to, you know, and instead of George Harrison, like the Jim Chopper fan club or whatever. <laughs> so he's, he's been around, he's played with everybody, and, and he's in the videos. You can see him uh, on both these videos. Uh, he's he's solid, he's rock solid. It must have been a lot of fun to, for him to be able, And he's oh, his Side, no, I'm sorry, he's uh, Buster Sideberry. That's who he's credited as. Uh, on the record so it must have been fun for him to be around all these folks
2: yeah and it it, it, you know there was a there was a the legend of the traveling wilburys or something about how they were from this place or They made up this story so yeah they were just goofing around having a good time and i think they were all supposed to be like brothers or cousins or something from some backwoods place or something i don't know but it speaks to the fact that they were all just having fun on this record yeah
1: and i think even the name Willberry came from the idea that like oh that's not quite right it's like we'll bury that in the mix (laughs) we'll bury that in the production you know and that just kind of became Willberry. and then back to the monty python thing i mean michael palin as Hugh Jampton uh, did the album liner notes, and then Eric Idle did the liner notes for Volume 3. In fact, he appeared in the Wilbur Twist video on Volume 3 with John Candy. Yeah, so they're obviously having a little fun here. It's not so serious. And I think it's like a record company couldn't mess with them because there's too much firepower for them to come <laughs> in and say, okay, now maybe you should record this
2: differently. Maybe you try this. There's no A and R man like hovering over. The shoulder. yeah, like I don't hear a single here. We gotta we gotta put something together.
1: Yeah, so I I think that made George really happy, and I I know that that makes Tom Petty happy as well. So I feel like they're left on their own to go do something fun, and some great stuff came out.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and get to get to hang out with people who they normally would not. I mean, if you, if you put if you put uh, a George Harrison record together. Right. Like he could pretty much get whoever he wanted to to play up right. for him. But to have people who were, you know, his his either his contemporaries or people that he idolized, that was kind of a whole nother level for all these guys. I think I think like so. there, there was a great story, about I think it was Peter Frampton got asked to uh, be on one of Harrison's records and he comes in and, you know, he's all ready to go. And Harrison is there and he's, you know, he says, oh, you know, hey, Pete and Pete, Frampton's like, oh, my God, he knows he knows who I am. He knows my name. But like this this is a whole different i mean no offense to peter Frampton, but this is a whole nother level with getting to work with these guys no oh, and
1: I, I remember that story he's like he started strumming along mm-hmm. and he's like no peter you're playing lead i'm <laughs> playing rhythm. like that's why you're here uh and because peter's like uh oh, this is george harrison i gotta defer to him he's like no man you do your thing that's that's why i want you here not for you to strum along
2: <laughs>
3: Hi, this is Jim Cregan, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London, and they're just the best. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
1: Alright, well we better get into uh, we better get into some of these tracks here. Okay. Five songs per side. I only ever had this on CD, but first song, Handle with Care, first single, which and the the, the story goes that they're at Bob Dylan's, I think, in his recording studio, and like, what are we doing, George? He goes, Well, we got a song. And he saw a box that said Handle with Care. It's like it's called Handle with Care. I've got all these <laughs> I've got all these songwriters here. Let's go. Let's get it together. Let's get a song going. And then, you know, they start throwing out lines. Like, no, that's not going to be out. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, that kind of thing. This does get credited to Harrison's publishing. But I just remember the video, right? They're in kind of an abandoned old warehouse or something like that, and they're all standing in a circle with the kind of center mic drop above them, mm-hmm. and they take turns stepping up and stepping back to sing their parts. And I just remember the star power of this video is unbelievable.
2: Right. And I, and I think I remember, I mean, I knew everybody in there, but I had really never heard Orvison sing on anything that was relatively new, like the old stuff, like Only the Lonely. But yeah, right. I, I remember thinking to myself, I, and at that point in time, I thought he was, you know, probably 70 when he was really only, you know, late 40s. Exactly. And I'm like, damn, that guy can really still sing. I
1: know. And, and they talk about how that, like, hey, we're all friends with him and we're all
2: having dinner together. you know.
1: But then he goes and Gets on the mic and, and sings into the camera. Like, oh shit, that's what it looks. <laughs> and he is still amazing. I can't believe I'm friends. You believe he got him in this band? Because again, the story goes that like Jeff and George and and Tom went to like a Roy Orbison show in L. A. And and before the show, they asked him to join. And of course, he said yes. And they went out and he did the show. And it was like and it was incredible. And they're they're like punching each other. Like, did you believe he got him in the band? You, you understand this is unbelievable, but you know, this is a Harrison song in that you know he starts the vocals out, he's first on lead, and he has the big slide guitar throughout. That is George Blake's
2: slide, which I didn't know. I mean, I, I kind of thought perhaps, maybe listening to this, that Mike Campbell was hanging around somewhere, he was not. So, yeah, all these guys, I, it, it, there really isn't a whole lot of extra personnel on this other than the percussion.
3: Up and battered around. Being sent up and I've been shut down. You the best thing
1: that I've ever found. And we with her. Right, Ray Cooper, who you know is kind of a legend, and I saw him play very classic on the journey before. He added a little bit to Keltner. But well, that's really about it. Jim Horn on sax, you know, not, not too many others. And like you see in the video. George is playing slide, Dylan's strumming a 12 string, mm-hmm. and Penny plays the bass. And
2: that was really his role as an instrumentalist
1: in the Wilberries, was playing the bass on all these songs.
2: Which is interesting because he uh that I mean, that's not his deal in in his band, but I guess it's one of those like, yeah, I really can't, I'm not gonna compete with the rest of these guys on guitar, so what can I do? Yeah, yeah, you can only layer
1: so many guitars in there. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, like My sweet Lord they layered like twelve. Or something on there but you don't need that much and so yeah and then lynn's plugged in his guitar of course he can play a little piano if need be you know and so yeah george is singing and then there's the break and and bob and tom sing together right yeah yeah somebody and then roy and jeff kind of lend a little bit to the to that and then they do their thing. With Roy getting a chance to shine, you know, I'm so tired of reading I mean, To have all these different voices in it is kind of amazing. And the second break, it's Roy and Jeff who were are reading with Bob and Tom kind of coming in to back them up. So there's a lot of balance here. And even Dylan breaks out his harmonica a little bit at the end.
2: Yeah, and that's what, that's what I kind of thought this whole record was going to be. And I'm glad they didn't do that because on one or two, or I guess maybe three tracks, on this one is where they they kind of all go back and forth as like lead singers, having to fit that into every song I think would have been tiresome. But on this one, especially being the lead single, they, I think they do a really good job of getting everybody a chance to shine. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's
1: very collaborative, you know. And the, the single did pretty well. I mean, went to two on album rock tracks in America, thirty adult contemporary, forty five with the Hot One Hundred made about top 20 in the UK, and top 10 and 20 in some places around the world, you know, and the video certainly helped that, you know, and so, hey, that's great, you know, I mean, that's that's super cool, it's 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 great that, uh, that they achieved some success here, and it was back with Margarita, which is on uh, side two, or you know later in the album, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a little bit, but I think they're all pretty psyched about it, and I think especially... Roy was psyched about it because Roy hadn't been on the charts in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. Petty's, you know, been on the charts a lot. Dylan gets on the charts and then he fades. George, he care less about the charts. He, he kind of automatically gets in there. Anything he does. <laughs> Seriously, there's so many Beatles fans out there that they're going to buy anything that, that he does at some point. And I think Roy was really chuffed, like, hey, man. You know the album went up high in the charts and was doing well, and he was you know it went to number one in Australia and Canada. It went to uh, number three on the Billboard Hot 100, so he was he was pretty psyched about it.
2: yeah yeah it and uh, I mean I think it sold three million in the United States, which is nothing to sneeze at, and yeah basically made him extremely relevant again. And then I mean unfortunately it, he wouldn't last on this earth that much longer. But you had mentioned you know Mystery Girl that was a that was a big hit record for him, um, I think, in in 89 or maybe 90 when that came out, right after this. And so, yeah, I mean, it basically in in a, in one second, his career was back.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and this won a Grammy, you know, for best, mm. best rock performance by a group with vocal. I mean, they did great. Now, yeah, Mystery Girl, sadly, it was his biggest selling album ever, and it was basically it came out after he died. Um, mm. But they had enough of him doing the song in the studio they shot a video
2: right and and i mean so for all of the all of the awful things that happened to him in his life you know personal tragedies Mm -hmm. for him to be able to go out on top was a huge plus for him i believe and you know he was happy he was he was back to being relevant back to being you know uh, more of a household name even though his life was cut short i think he was only 52 when he died it was uh if you had to pick it that's the way you'd want to go out that's right
1: yeah that's right and there's a funny there's a funny thing in that tom petty documentary where it's like you know i guess george had called up tom you know about how roy died and tom goes i don't know if i'm supposed to tell you what he said but i'm not telling tell you he, he goes aren't you glad it wasn't you <laughs> And Tom's like, well, yeah, yeah, I am, <laughs> quite frankly. And then George goes, he'll be all right. George is very, very spiritual man. Olivia said that when he died, the room lit up like his spirit showed a great big light. Hmm. I don't know about all. Of <laughs> I hope it's true, but I don't know. But but that's the way he was, and, and and so he you know he believed that there was you would live on some way, and that your spirit will be okay. And so he said, yeah, we'll it'll be okay. And I'm just glad that he was included in this video his first hit in a long time yeah all right let's move on second song is dirty world with dylan on lead vocals and the other guys helping to fill in here a little bit what was your take from this second song on the
2: record? this was a, it, like i said this was a little bit strange to me or not strange but it was interesting how we, we kind of shift gears now because, I mean, this really is a Bob Dylan song. He he is, you know, if you work the math backwards, he is credited with writing this or his publishing company is. That's right. I mean, it, 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 it fits his vocal styles well. I did like the part about how in that video they were showing how the the – percussion was done on anything that they could find up to and including the refrigerator shelves Mm -hmm. like they're just beating on things to make interesting sounds um and I do like the I like the call and response um element of this too yeah and then they then they go into the random lines from I think magazines or whatever that were lying around I think it's it's kind of cool it's funny yeah
1: it's kind of got an acoustic chug to it and he's singing you know, to a woman about some other dude that loves her, I guess. But then, yeah, at the end, they're talking about, he loves your big refrigerator, or he yeah. loves your, it's a lot of car stuff. It's like power steering and, you know, parts service and stuff like that. There must have been a car flyer or something like that. But yeah, it's fun, you know, and everyone's singing together. Yes, Dylan's on lead. There's a little bit of a false ending to the yeah. song. And then wow. it comes back a little bit. You hear Harrison singing, you know, it's a dirty world.
3: Um. He loves when you hold him, grab him from behind. Oh, baby, you're such a pretty thing. I can't wait to introduce you to the other members of my gang. You don't need no wax jar, you're smooth enough for me. If you need your oil change,
1: I'll do it for you free so yeah i mean it's not i don't know if i call it a gear shifter or not but it's definitely different from hand to care. that's for
2: sure yeah and and it's 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 interesting because in on that first track where dylan is on there he's he's singing kind of you know back up in harmonies and this one he takes lead so you can already tell okay this is what we're gonna do here we're gonna we're gonna switch people around and give everybody a chance and i do like that part in the video where they're standing around doing the lines mm-hmm. and they're i mean it's, it looks like they recorded all at one time and they're just taking turns stepping up you know saying their lines stepping back and i don't know whether they randomly got them or what you know how they distributed them but it, it just looked like they were having fun exactly they're having fun together yeah and i'm not sure that's
1: something that always happened. and this is an upbeat song Not all of the songs are always upbeat this is upbeat with horns you know I, and then you're right to see them at the end especially when you see them recording it where they're yeah. taking turns saying these odd weird little things it's like they're cracking each other up they're just having fun it's like we would eat dinner and then we would go sing i'm like that sounds like a
2: <laughs> yeah and especially in you know in a world where they could have potentially just recorded a lot of the stuff independently and spliced it all together and come up with something the fact that they did hang out together And you know, have dinner and write and collaborate and record it together. I think makes this uh, record a little more special. Also,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Now the third song is "Rattle." This is a little bit faster. I kind of liken it to a fifties kind of simple song, you know, with the way the the chug of the guitars and and stuff like that. Real simple solo. George didn't try to outdo himself. He kind of did a solo that kind of fits that era of songwriting.
2: Yeah, and this one definitely sounds like fifties inspired. And a couple of these songs actually do, and I don't know if that was having Orvis in there as kind of a callback, but yeah, it kind of sounds like you've got those like twangy Johnny Cash guitars on this one.
1: Yeah, and 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 fifties look. That's right up Jeff Lynn's alley. Yeah. in the seventies, he was doing fifty stuff, and, <laughs> and he did right. this is a Jeff right, you know? Uh, yep. But you hear Roy doing his, you know, cat calls yeah. and stuff yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Tom throws in a little bit here. I mean, look, it's 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 not my favorite song, but it's a fun one. Uh, it's the shortest song of the album. It's barely three minutes, and it's got a good rhythm to it. You know, basically, it's Jeff and Tom here. I don't know if Dylan really did much on this song. To be honest with you but you know hey it's a it's a good one it, it's fast paced and it uh, you know kind of falls in the middle of side one here
2: right and and it's you know we were changed up again to have lynn on the lead which he doesn't I, he doesn't really sing lead a whole bunch on this one so it's it's a nice change and it's different than the the track before it so we're kind of we're kind of moving we're not getting set in any one genre or any one, you know, person singing lead from one track to the next. Well, that's a good
1: way to put it. Yeah. You know, and, and Jeff doesn't need to, he's producing everything. He's helping to write the songs. George's yeah. got a distinct voice. Dylan's got a distinct voice. Roy obviously does. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom makes it. So he doesn't need to sing a lot of lead on here. And he's, he contributes a lot to the harmony, but I, yeah, I, 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 he has some power in his voice when he comes on, his range might not be huge, but his timbre and everything, it, it comes through very well. Absolutely. Now the fourth track, I really like. This could have been a single, as far as I'm concerned. It's a good story song. It's a Tom Petty write, uh, okay. and
2: uh-huh. I kind of thought this was a single, to be honest. And, and I look because I remember hearing it, and so I'm like, well, okay, this was the third single, but apparently not. But you're right. I, I don't know why they didn't release it. And maybe it got some
1: airplay, and we did mm. hear it on the radio at some point. You know, it's got. Tom telling a story about how he met a girl. And it's got kind
2: of a, yeah. it's kind of got a fun like a, little bass like groove, an, too, right? yeah, like an island groove kind of.
1: A little bit. There's another one later that I think there's a huge island groove on, but yeah, it's 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 not the typical groove for any of these guys, really. Yeah. And then they all sing the chorus. The thing is, Patty would do like four lines, and then everybody would go. Last night, that would be like the chorus. So the yeah. chorus is kind of throughout. It's not like there's. Three parts of the chorus. There's chorus all over the place, but then there would be a break for Roy to come in, where they kind of shift it. They go to the minor chords. They kind of yeah, it's, it's a little
2: darker when he comes in. Exactly,
1: they're like, yeah. kind of portending some bad things <laughs> happening. And of course, the second time he does, like she pulls out a knife, says "Your money or your life," and i are like, "Yeah, that's that's the darker side." But <laughs> his voice is so smooth on it; it's like
2: you're, you're being delivered this ominous bad news in the sweetest way possible by roy you know well and it it almost sounds like like you're sitting at a bar telling your friend this story let me tell you about this crazy thing that exactly what it last is yeah night. yeah mm-hmm. yeah she was there at the bar she heard my guitar
3: she was long and tall she was the queen of them all
1: Last night, last night, and then, yeah. and
2: then it's almost like you know people are trying to like one up each other,
1: and you can see about now. Oh, I'm back in the bar, you know. It's like mm-hmm. it's the next day. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I went to the bar last night, picked up a chick. She tried to kill me, <laughs> and I'm back again. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> that was last night. You know? Yeah. Uh, more nights to come. So yeah, I, I really like this one and it kind of shows you where Tom Petty is as a songwriter because Full Moon Fever is coming out next. which sold a squigillion copies and something like yeah. that. It's something crazy. So he, and, and of course on volume three, which was the second album, I feel like Petty had really kind of taken over. They don't have Roy anymore. And he did a lot of the songwriting and a lot of the singing, too, uh, on Volume 3. And, 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 you know, probably for good reason. Like, okay, Tom has had the biggest album that any of us have ever had with, with Full Moon Fever, right? So let's kind of defer to that.
2: Now, the the too bad part about Volume 3 was that they they did want Del Shannon, for the runaway fame, to be on that record. Yeah. And he tragically ended his life. So they went in with a four part. I just wonder what they would have done with him, you know, it, to, to kind of stretch things out. Because you're right, it was a little bit. It, it, you could definitely tell there was something. The magic just wasn't there the, exactly the same. Right. With the with that third, with the well, the second record they call Volume Three without Orbison. I, I
1: agree with you totally. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, and they did. Jeff did cover Runaway. Mm-hmm. as a, like a bonus track that you can get with that, that box set collection or whatever you want to call it. You know that he, that Tom Penny poached Howie Epstein his longtime bassist from Del
2: Shannon. Uh, no, I didn't know that, but yeah. that's interesting.
1: Yeah, when, when Ron left the band, he needed a new bass player and Tom was friends with Del and, and I guess Howie had kind of become his musical director and kind of lead backing vocalist or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and Tom was like, I want Howie. And Del was kind of pissed off at it. He's like, Tom, you can go get anyone you want, and you got to take Howie from me. <laughs> and he's like, "Dell, I'm taking Howie." And he, goes, and he got over it, sort of. <laughs> uh, but see, bringing it in the Willberries would have been a way to make up for that, right? Uh, but Dell couldn't stand the fact that he was not getting any love anymore. He couldn't get a record contract. He was that one hit from decades ago, I mean, three Sweet. decades ago, and he Sadly, took his own life before they could say, "Hey, you want to come along and be with us?" Of course, Howie basically ended up taking his own life in he succumbed to airway, mm.
2: which is all. Yeah, yeah, that was really sad. It, it was interesting because I didn't really realize how going back to that Wildflowers documentary. I mean, I knew Howie Epstein, I knew he'd been in the band. I didn't realize how how much he sang backup. Yeah, Tom. So it was that was an interesting nugget of information. Yeah, no, I mean, Tom loved singing backup with him. Mm-hmm.
1: but you know he was also kind of material like when Tom was working on a solo he's like they were working on a song one day now he's like I don't get this song I don't like it and I don't want to sing on it and Tom's like well okay if you don't want to sing on it you don't have to he's like yeah and he split yeah that song was free falling <laughs> uh so you know <laughs> he had his issues I guess mm-hmm. God bless it anyway the the fifth song the last and the first song not alone anymore this is mm. a vehicle for Roy's beautiful
2: voice. Correct. I know that uh this one's credited to Lynn. This is this is Jeff Lynn writing a song for Roy Orvis. Oh, Roy, yeah. And I know that there was a uh, there was some footage where they're saying, "Well, you know, we wouldn't we didn't really know who was going to sing what. You know, we kind of take turns and see who came out, you know, who sounded the best." I can't imagine that was the that was the deal on this song. This it deal. sounds like Lynn wrote that for him because yeah, it's right in his wheelhouse.
1: Absolutely. no, He wrote a song, a Roy Wilkerson song for Roy. Mm-hmm. And this is the last, I mean, before they did You Got It on Mystery Girl, this is kind of Roy's last thing that he did purely for him while he was alive. It's a sorry ballad. It's 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 a great song for him. But apparently there was a first version that had like a different arrangement on it. Uh, and maybe different chord progressions on it. And everyone's like, especially Tom, i like, nah, this, this song's good. This isn't right. You know, we, yeah. and then Jeff's and Roy are like, oh man, this is great. So, so Jeff changed it up and he put in some acoustic stuff on it. And like the next day, like the chords, all of a sudden Roy's voice stuck out more and it made more sense. And like, oh, now we love it. You know, now it's awesome. <laughs> so then he fixed it up. And so, yeah. And, and so that's how that song worked out. It's always amazing to hear how. In demo form, it wasn't the same and wasn't very good, apparently.
2: Yeah. Right. How did you, yeah. How did you get to the final thing? And you start off, you know, because I did, I think demos are just a way to find kind of the edges of what you're looking for. And then you get, you just kind of layer it and you try different things. And then you come up with the final product that is sometimes not even close to being what the demo was.
1: True that. Absolutely. So, all right, Roy gets his time to shine on here. Just him, thanks to Jeff Lynn. Now, you flip to the second side, although it was... i I never had the second side of the CD
2: as far as I'm concerned. Congratulations. (laughs) Yes. I never liked this one. I Okay, why did you not like it? Okay,
1: I I think, honestly, first of all, it's a little slow. Mm. Secondly, I was not... When I first heard this in, like, 1988... 1989 i was not a huge bob dylan fan and i didn't know his work that well to be okay. perfectly honest listening to it now i have a greater appreciation for it you know obviously that's well that's bob doing his thing it's a bob song he wrote it but yeah it, congratulations i mean the, the chorus is not great to me yeah I, I mean he's a great songwriter obviously not a great singer the song is better than i remember it but it's just if there's any one that I probably wouldn't keep from the album, this this would be the one.
2: <laughs> I would say the same thing probably in 1988. Now go now listening to it for this show, I kind of like it because it's just a giant middle finger. You know, like he's oh, congratulations for breaking my heart. Like, you yeah. know, and it's and it's Dylan, like he's just like in that. I don't think anybody else could have sung this one the way that he does because he's just look at that gravelly voice and you know you have yeah. got that call and and response thing where he's you know they say congratulations and then he gives you the gives you the line yeah it, it, I mean definitely a, a beast uh um not a b-side but a uh album track but it is a b-side it was the b-side end of the line. oh what oh okay well yeah. You have it then. <laughs> See? yeah um yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting song. Not the one that I'm in love with, but I mean, it is. It is nice to hear Dylan sing on this one of his own songs.
3: Congratulations, Congratulations breaking my heart. Congratulations you it all apart. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, look, George has a nice little slide bit at the beginning that I like. There's some orchestration there at the end. I, I just, you know, it's it's not a great song. And it's like, I, I get it. It's kind gra- congratulations for breaking my heart. You know, it's it's, it's not an actual congratulations. But it's, it's kind of like, to me, Happy Birthday is one of the worst songs ever written. It, it okay. sounds like something they play when you lose on a game show. You know, it's like eh, I'm sorry. The answer is lower motor neurons. Uh, better luck next time. Wah 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 wah. wah. You know, it's, it's a horrible song. This is like, congratulations. You know, it's, it's that, that kind of is where it is for me. I you know. All right, thought, so you're hitting the skip button on that one, pretty much. Pretty much. Although I was glad to listen to it because. I had skipped it so many times in my life to listen to the whole thing. It's like, okay, there's some good elements to this song. This isn't a total throwaway, but still don't love it.
3: Hey, this is Scott Holiday from the Rival Sons. You're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London.
1: But then comes in heading for the light, mm-hmm. which I think is a beautiful song, a wonderful song, wonderful sentiment. And obviously a George Harrison song,
2: and but also obviously a Jeff Lynn had his finger in this too, because it sounds like what if George Harrison was in the was in the Electric Light Orchestra? Mm. Well, it would sound like this. Oh, my hands on side.
3: Oh, still I kept on till the worst gone. Yeah, the
1: the harmony from Jeff on this is huge. In fact, in the yeah. harmony, you can almost not even hear George.
2: Yes. Correct. Jeff
1: is so like up in the mix. Yeah. But you can you can kind of tell it's like he's he's saying about heading for the light, like coming back to the light. Maybe it's talking about spiritually, but I also feel like it's talking about professionally. Like, I'm coming back to a place where I don't resent the fact that I have to make pop records. Where I don't, you know, (laughs) resent the fact. Like, I get to work with people I'm happy about working with. and Working with Jeff on Cloud9, I think, was a big thing for him. Got My Mind Set On, It was a very upbeat
2: song, and it was a hit for him. Mm
1: -hmm. And I I think that,
2: huh? It was a number one hit, wasn't it? Uh, probably, yeah, that's
1: uh, crazy. It, it was big. You know, I remember the video with all the weird animals moving yeah. their mouths. Like the taxidermy guy must have had a blast with that. <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's him being back to the light spiritually, back to the light professionally. There's no record company people to mess with it. You know, and there's kind of a syncopated, I don't know guitar or, dobro or something like that at the beginning, which makes it a little different. Yeah, it also has a false ending uh mm-hmm. where it kind of fades back in. You got Jim Horn blowing his sax on it, so I, I love this one. If there's a ten song best of the Wilberries this would definitely be on it for me.
2: Yeah, and and this is a nice one to find on the album. Also, you know, you know, you know the singles, but to hear yeah, to hear Harrison singing like he's really having a good time is fun.
1: Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I mean it's. It's sad when a great artist decides he doesn't really want to do it anymore and and i think he became jaded by fame he didn't really want fame anymore he became jaded by the record industry but then of course you know he he still has an opportunity to express himself.
2: yeah and i think he also kind of got hosed on his on his uh movie deal too his handmade pictures he had a couple that were difficult to make i think he had problems with terry gilliam and mm-hmm. he definitely had problems with uh Sean Penn and he was just, I think at this point in time he was just kind of burned out on the whole fame and you know entertainment business.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. So I think being able this was like a light at the end of the mm-hmm. tunnel like ah mm-hmm. this is actually fun. I, I remember enjoying making yeah. music. <laughs> I remember enjoying working, you know. Well, so and, and
2: but okay, so but think about that for a minute though too like when you when you watched Get Back which was the pretty much the end of the Beatles I mean did it look like he was having a whole lot of fun there even he uh, was 25
1: or 26 yeah, at that point I mean, you know yeah. now he's in his mid-40s which again at this point there there really hadn't been any rock stars in their mid-40s the, the, the genre wasn't old enough for mm-hmm. them to be You know, not to mention elvis is dead and you know uh, a lot of people from like that era well they were relegated to way the sidelines so yeah like little richard's still alive but He's not on the charts, you know. Right. He, he's playing, you know, small clubs and stuff like that. So there really were no middle-aged rock stars yet, and um, so they're proving, hey, we can still do this despite and, our and, age,
2: right? And, and not only, and not only be it like a legacy act. Like here's new stuff that on exactly. onto the radio and be a number one hit. Yeah, you're right. Th- this was kind of the dawn of classic rock radio,
1: and, yeah, and, and and new classic rock. Right, you know. Right. So, and it, it's not long after this, you know, that the steel wheels comes out for the Stones, you know, and Correct. they're having a big comeback. Like, hey, yeah, we're in our early to mid forties, but we can still be relevant.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So now the next track, Margarita. This is the B side to Handle with Care. This one I feel like is very different from everything else on the album because it's got that synth
2: to start out. You know? Yeah. Yeah, very, very, yes, very interesting. And and there's a lot of instrument, uh, a lot of instrumental parts in this. Not a lot of lyrics. Yeah,
1: it's it's almost an instrumental, not quite. But I mean, George puts a nice slide on here that I've always mm-hmm. liked. Dylan takes the lead, but this is the one that kind of has a calypso island vibe okay yeah
2: yeah Yeah. i really like that slide guitar part and i think that's but probably another thing that harrison doesn't get enough credit for either is being able to play the guitar
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, there was that time in the 60s where he was, you know, he was hanging out with Brad Shankar and was kind of contemplating, maybe I should just become a sitar player (laughs) and not a guitar player. And then he kind of realized, well, there's a thousand people on the streets of India who can play better than me. Mm -hmm. But I do have some experience playing the guitar and I can be a leader in that field. So while I kind of stick to that and I'm glad he did I mean obviously his slide put some great texture on a lot of these songs
2: yeah, and we didn't need sits on everything either. No, yeah. no that's a new, that's in a far right <laughs> Dylan's on lead, but Tom wrote
1: it, and, and Tom comes in for the second part here. So this is a petty right that he kind of offered up to
2: Bob. Right, and and that's that's the one the one thing I like also on this is that there are songs where person A wrote it but did not sing lead. Like you'd figure, well, you know, I wrote this one, so I'm going to take the lead. And maybe maybe this was one where, I mean, the the, or- the Orbison one, no. Obviously, that was something different. But, I mean, maybe did he try it and Dylan sounded better? I don't know.
1: I don't know. And then apparently on the third of volume three, the second album, they tried Bob on all the tracks because he had to go and do some tour dates and stuff like that. So they, they kind of got him to sing all of them. And then they decided, you know, which one he would actually be the lead on. kind of thing mm-hmm. Good harmonies, again, from the guys on this. A lot of O's and Ah's. And at the, the beginning, ah, you know, Rita—it's just mm-hmm. having them all together. It's a, kind of a special sound, we, You know, we like the harmonies of Def Leppard. We, we like the harmonies of a lot of different bands. So this, even though it's kind of a porky song, should be right up our alley from the harmonies.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I do like this, even though it's it's not. It doesn't really fit in with the rest of this stuff. But that's I think kind of why I like this album too—is it doesn't all sound the same and that's i think that comes from having multiple people writing songs
1: yeah absolutely so now we get to what i think is the most interesting track on the record, tweeter and the monkey man Mm -hmm. and it's easily the longest track i mean all the tracks are about three and a half minutes or so rattle is only three but this is five and a half minutes and this is dylan storytelling (laughs) through and through Uh, and apparently tom played this at like honor and i had a buddy Stopher who went to see tom petty he's like yeah there was this one song he played i didn't know what it was like it was sweeter in the month god i'd kill to see him play that song because <laughs> obviously there was never any kind of willberry tour mm-hmm. and so and dylan probably i don't know if he ever played it or not to be honest with you. but he's got so many songs to choose from in his vast catalog I mean, who, who knows but i mean i guess tom broke it up broken out at some point which is pretty cool yeah um, i
2: would like i'd like to hear him do that it, it definitely sounds like this was maybe one that he had dylan had in his back pocket or he had been working on because mm-hmm. this this doesn't sound like anything else this sounds like bob dylan wrote this on his own and brought it in
1: and just i mean it's almost like hurricane uh with its storytelling yeah. here yeah. about you know just first of all you're in new jersey which is you know where hurricane took place you're talking about drug dealers on the run messing with the cops it's very imagistic it, it it creates a story that you can really follow along
2: right and i think he's got the line in there in jersey everything's legal as long as you don't get caught that's right it's a very true statement just so you know just so
1: you know yeah and mm-hmm. what i never knew or didn't realize uh before doing some research for the show is that oh it's like tom and or uh, well, first of all tom and bob kind of wrote this together like Harrison's like, Jeff and I were there, and and Bob and, and Tom were kind of writing, scribbling back and forth, and we weren't really that involved in it. It's like, it was kind of their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff may have contributed a little bit, but sometimes people regard this as a playful homage to Bruce Springsteen, who was often, you know, tabbed as the next great songwriter, the next great kind of Bob Dylan type, because, you know, first of all, set New Jersey, which is Springsteen's home, right. but some of the, you, you hear him mention Thunder Road, Down the Thunder Road in the song, which is a Bruce Springsteen song, Mansion on the Hill, which is a Bruce Springsteen song, you know, State Trooper was a Bruce Springsteen song, Stolen Car, The River, you know, mm-hmm. Jersey Girl was a Springsteen song, even though Tom Waits was, so, there's so many little references
2: to Springsteen titles in here that's probably not by accident. No, it couldn't be. It could so is he is he paying homage to Springsteen or is he saying you'll never be me or I don't know what's going on here. I don't know,
1: but it's a hell of a story song mm-hmm. and you know talking about tweeter was tweeter a crossdresser was treated transsexual is there's, there's some odd stuff in here we're not really <laughs> sure exactly what's going on and the couple cop had a sister named jan who loved the monkey man it, it's kind of an ominous song and really you only hear the rest of the guys on the course and the walls came down yeah but dylan telling the story this is some great dylan right here and i, I the fact that it ended up on a, on a Wilburys album is cool, because, you know, at the time, some of the stuff Dylan was doing wasn't really hitting all that big, you know, and then it was it 89 or 90, when Under the Red Sky came out. That didn't do as well as Oh Mercy, I don't feel like, you know, so mm-hmm. Bob's kind of hitting this. This, to me, is Bob right down the middle, exactly what he ought to be doing. <laughs>
3: up online selling hash to an cop who had a sister named Jan for reasons She loved the monkey man. was a
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that, you know, even from the beginning, it was or from the beginning track, Dylan and, and Petty, their their voices kind of sound the most they're the most compatible mm-hmm. out of all four of them. And it kind of sounds like their songwriting is the most compatible also.
1: Yeah, and they obviously got to know each other pretty well doing that tour together where Tom and the Heartbreakers were his backing band. So it makes sense. I just, it, To me, this is a forgotten classic. They don't play it on the radio a lot because it's a little long, and it's it's kind of a rare track, but I think it's killer. I'm so glad it ended up on this album and not a Bob Dylan album, if just for the harmonies and the fact that it stands out with all these like three and a half minute ditties this is kind of a long story song and this would obviously be in the top 10 for me
2: yeah i I think you're right it's it's a great find on this record because you're not gonna you're not gonna hear it anywhere else and i'm glad it's got a weird title too like tweet i don't even know what this is about but if you listen to it yeah it's a great story song, and it almost kind of sounds like, you know, who are these guys? These guys are storytellers, and this is like another chapter in the story they're telling you. Like, it's not all happy and shiny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So, coming to the last song on the album, End of the Line, which, of course, had the big video. They're kind of on a, on a train, on a, right? Yeah, on a train. Yeah. This was released the 23rd of January 89, but Roy had died December 6th of eighty eight. Mm-hmm. So he, he'd seen them get into the charts or whatever, but wasn't around for this song to be released. So they, when they did the video, they're all on the train and then they had a rocking chair there with the black acoustic guitar in it. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to Roy's turn in the song, it just kind of made the thing rock and put the spotlight on him. Uh, so, which is, I thought was a really cool. Tributes to
2: What well, I think, because I went back and I mean, watched this video to get ready for the show, and yeah, they do that, and then it looks like they, there's a they've got a little picture of him on a table, and it looks like everything kind of gets darker. When he when his thing comes when his verse comes in and then it yeah. kind of lightens up again kind of a yeah a tribute to him that's right yeah, the, the whole place be
1: darker except for the spotlight on his rocking yeah. chair yeah absolutely but you know this is a Harrison song you know so mm. George does the first lead bit and he does the last lead bit Jeff does the second bit and the second to last bit Tom in addition to playing bass kind of does the interlude don't have to be ashamed of. yeah all right yeah man. no Dylan lead. Uh, vocals on this is only, you know, in the background. But Roy did have the middle. So it's kind of like Jeff first. I'm sorry, George first, then Jeff. Tom's doing the middle bits. Roy's in the middle. And then Jeff and then George kind of finishes it out. It's very upbeat. I always like this song. And Petty did play it with the Heartbreakers on the 2008
2: tour. Oh, uh, nice. And, and it's a nice, it's a nice upbeat way to end the record after the Dylan track. Well, it's all right.
1: absolutely you know it it hit the charts number two u.s album rock chart 28 u.s uh, adult contemporary you know hit top 10 in canada and and, you know was a silver certified silver single in the uk you know so again they only released two singles but they did pretty well and then they knew after this everyone's kind of going to go back to doing their own thing again dylan's got a tour Tom's got to work on a record, Roy's got shows he's got to do, you know, that kind of thing. But obviously with the death of Roy that everybody kind of moving back to their own stuff, it's kind of a one done. Yes, there was a second record, but it didn't really feature Roy, which just changes it just ever so slightly. It's not quite the same. This is the superest of all supergroups, <laughs> and they only made one record, which is what happens to super groups. Everybody's got something else they can go do. That's the point of a super. Yes, it may be great when they're together, but they can all leave and do something else.
2: Right. Right. And and there, I think there was some, you know, you mentioned that, that Harrison didn't really like to tour. And so, I mean, that, that tour like this was never really going to work. There was too many moving pieces but he had some kind of idea about like renting an aircraft carrier or something. And then like, you know, they could all live on it and travel around. And I mean, I understand that was pie in the sky, but yeah. you know, to to have seen them at least play a couple of the shows, that would have been awesome. I know. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, a tour was never going to work a, a large scale tour. There was just too many, too many moving pieces.
1: Yeah. And apparently Tom was begging him to do it. Like George, it's so much money, dude. We, Got to do it. You know, think about that. But the thing is, George did eventually do a tour of Japan, and this time he had Eric Clapton and his band backing him. The same band that I saw on the Journeyman tour in 1990, that included okay. Nathan East and I think Ray Cooper, who played on this album, was part of Eric's band at that time. Steve Ferrone, who would eventually join the Heartbreakers was Eric's drummer at the time. So he went out and did that. He recorded an album, which I bought back in the day, which is which is pretty cool, live in Japan. And after that, he's like, well, maybe we could do some Wilbury shows, but I guess without Roy, it's just, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And Tom had now blown up to enormous heights, and Dylan's always got his own thing going. So it, it never came together, which is sad. It, even if they just done one show and filmed it yeah yeah would have been amazing.
2: Correct. Yeah. You know, in in London, in New York, in LA, something like that. Yeah. At the, at the Greek Theater, what if you could have had one record of them playing together? Yeah. That mm-hmm. would have been great. Now, there were a couple of
1: bonus tracks that came with the re release. The first one was Maxine, which is obviously a Harrison Wright. <laughs> I mean, just very obviously, you know, and Lots of acoustic overdubs. It almost sounds like an Irish folk song in the beginning to me. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot to the song. There's not a big solo or anything. He was probably left off because uh, it wasn't 100 percent fleshed out, you know. And yeah. it, it, it starts with one, two, three, four, five. So it's like Tom's counting off or whatever. It's like yeah, he probably edited that out of a real song. And at the end, it's like you can hear George say, "Okay, that's it." <laughs>
2: Yeah, then the yeah. song's over, right? <laughs> I think it's only two minutes and change. Like, it's not. It's not even three minutes long. So, yeah, yeah it definitely kind of does sound like a like an unfinished piece,
1: like an eighty-five to ninety percent finished yeah. song. Like, not quite. And the same with like a ship, uh, which Dylan wrote and sang on. Uh, it, it's more three and a half minutes, like like most of the rest of the songs of the album. It's just not quite a finished song. I mean, it's cool that we got to hear it. both of them. They both have drums on it. They both have good harmonies and stuff on it, uh, but they're they're not a hundred percent finished. In
2: my life. Mm. and I think that's one of the things that I do like about this record is that they're all all of the the songs are short, so the, it gives you a chance to go from track to track. There's no big instrumental interludes. There's no freak out guitar solos. Uh, the, even the, there really aren't any big riffs in this it's just it's basically just a vehicle for these guys to sing on
1: that's right yeah absolutely and then you know so they've all got momentum here now you know and i won't back down big song for tom penny on the next record well who yeah. was in the video well jeff lynn was in the video george harrison was in the video mike campbell of the heartbreakers and then ringo star ringo. Yeah. and what, what was the vj's name kevin he had dark hair you remember that guy uh, on MTV. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yes. Kevin
1: Seal. Okay. I remember him introducing the video one night. It's like, there's two heartbreakers, there's three Wilberries and there's two Beatles. <laughs> so there must be seven people in this video, you know, kind of thing. But I just remember it being a big deal. Having Ringo on there and George, you know, he's back mm-hmm. doing his stuff again. Good to see Mike back because you know that Tom considers Mike Campbell his co-pilot. doesn't really want to work without him.
2: Yeah, that was a that was the thing on that Wildflowers deal where it was like, you know, is this going to be a Heartbreaker record? Is it going to be a is going to be a Tom Petty record? What are we going to do on this? And they're like, well, you know, if we have Howie and we have you know Stan and and everybody, it to it, it, it be a Heartbreaker record. So there was never any question of Mike Campbell. Like he's not like, is he going to be on the record? Or is he not? He's there, and then yeah. we'll see if we get the other guys or not. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, and yeah, that was the
1: thing about Wildflowers. The only one who really wasn't on it was Stan,
2: and that was his fault.
1: And yeah, and he's and he left. He basically was done after that. And they brought Steve Roni in because he was available.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He gelled with them well, and then it, and then he joined the Heartbreakers thereafter. You know, and mm-hmm. Tom would always say the best record we as a collective, the Heartbreakers ever did, was Wildflowers. When I mean, it's technically not a Heartbreakers record, it's it's a Tom Petty record, but it's got after that came out, it's got the Heartbreakers. Life on it, you know. Yeah, right. So, but of course, now what tragically is yes, Roy died while it was on the charts, while it was still brand new, and since then, George died, and then sadly, Tom Petty did, the youngest of the Willmaries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He died. So now the only people left are Bob Dylan and Jeff lit mm-hmm. which is sad. But you know, I mean, you you lost Roy thirty five years ago, right? So, uh, and, and you know, these people are getting older. George. You know, suffered a brutal attack by a would-be murderer, which you know he survived, but he didn't live a hell of a yeah. T- Tom. I think died from a mix of all the different medicines that he was on right after he finished. They basically said this is the last big tour. Not that we're never going to play again, but like this is the last big tour. I got to see him. I was really psyched about it. Joe Walsh opened for him, and then uh, and then yeah, Tom Petty left us. So I feel like this is a, an important part of all of the folks who passed away's legacy. Important for Jeff Lynn, maybe least important to Bob Dylan, if I had to guess.
2: I would say you're probably right because I think Bob Dylan would have existed he, uh, regardless of this record, he, and he's carried on doing his thing, yeah, you know, releasing yeah, records yeah. when he wants to. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, you're going to you're going to listen to whatever he puts out, and and he doesn't. I don't think he's ever really cared about whether you like me or not, this is what I'm going to do. So it it was nice that he was part of this, but yeah, you're right. I don't think this really affected him one way or the other.
1: Right. Whereas, you know, Tom Petty, this was big for him. And then because of this, he got full moon fever, Mm -hmm. which is the biggest album he ever did, which is the biggest album any of them ever did. This was big for George because it was kind of putting back in the spotlight and, and made him happy to be making music. Again, it was big for Jeff Lynn because then he gets to produce everybody's albums. He gets to produce the first Beatles song and, 25 years or whatever it is (laughs) with free as a bird that's a huge deal he gets to keep ELL going ELL going and obviously it's huge for Roy because he'd never been in the charts for two decades and now he's back and he's psyched and it's sorry that he lost his life but so I feel like as far as everyone's legacy goes this plays an important role but least of which I'd have to say is Dylan's
2: yeah, it, it's interesting. You you're Probably the top two are either Harrison and or Orbison. And I would say Harrison only because this, this really cemented him as kind of got him out of the Beatles' shadow. I mean, I know Cloud9 had come out, but this was really like, you know, it was his band. He did this. He could, it, it, I think it reminded people that he was just as much of a part of the Beatles' success as John and, and Paul and John.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he deserves that credit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely,
2: does. absolutely. He, he he was. I mean, he he calls himself the Dark Horse. He had the he had the track Dark Horse, but I mean, this this really kind of cemented, at least to, I think, to our generation of people that yeah, this dude was a powerhouse on his own. Yeah, and All
1: Things Must Pass, which was the triple album that came out after the demise of the Beatles, mm. I think is the best solo album any of the Beatles ever made. Of course, he had all these tracks saved up that he couldn't get on a Beatles record. it's so like. All right I'll just, I'll just say it i'll just say it i'll just say it and it had what is life on it and it had my sweet lord on it and uh it was you know it's fantastic he, he's really my favorite i love paul mccartney and everything, mm-hmm. and he's been fairly prolific but i you know I, I just feel like george was the had the coolest solo career those beatles he didn't tour a lot he didn't really like to tour he didn't love performing live all the time but he made some great records
2: right and i think that's what i think that's what came through for me on this on this documentary is i don't think he really ever wanted to be a solo artist i think he did because he kind of had to right but i think really he was more comfortable in a band setting i
1: think so and a great collaborator Petty mm-hmm. tells a story about how they were playing ukuleles basically george is teaching tom how to play the ukulele <laughs> so they're walking around the garden you know playing their chords and strumming and he's teaching him how to do it. And he's like, I'm going to give you a ukulele. And Tom's like, well, you gave me this one. This is all I need. He's like, no, no, we might need more ukuleles. So he goes over to his car and he opens it up. I don't know if there's a half dozen or a dozen ukes in there or something like that. <laughs> and Tom's like, what are you doing with all these ukuleles in your car? It's kind of it's kind of weird and yet it's kind of awesome that you're giving me one and teaching me how to plug it and stuff like that. So apparently that's what George always traveled with, you, because it's easy to take on a plane and it doesn't huh. take up a lot of space and basically those four strings get the bottom four strings, the guitar anyway so you can you can play you can play those yeah, things you, yeah
2: yeah and you can get your point across with a much smaller instrument huh that's one of those things where like if you said you know george harrison has 12 ukuleles in the back of his car like no he doesn't but that makes sense that he would okay i could yeah. see that going either way yeah, it does.
1: so in, in light of all the the heaviness that we've been doing in the book of like, let's take a step back. Let's let's do something just a little different. And this was a fun listen.
2: I, I think it was too. And if you're only, if you're only familiar with handle with care last night and end of the line, you're going to be pleasantly surprised with the rest of this record.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed our take on traveling Wilburys volume one. It's a fun album to go back and listen to. You know, it was big. I guess when we were in high school, we're starting to get into that harder rock stuff. So it probably wasn't our favorite at the time. But those two big singles, Handle With Care and End of the Line, were big on MTV. they were big on rock radio. And it was huge for all the guys in the band. It was really cool to see these legends all come together and have some fun and make a cool record. I think it surprised Jackson that I wanted to do it. But when I saw it was coming up on a 35th anniversary, I thought, you know what? That's a cool album. It's kind of a cool story within the story of all these guys, all these legends, amazing careers. And quite frankly, we recorded this in the summer when we had been doing a lot of heavy metal. So I needed something a little bit lighter there. And you may have noticed that our sound was a little off. I was still in the middle of moving around and, and trying to get the sound right as we move back to America here. So hopefully this is the last show that has that kind of issue with my voice on it. But we appreciate you listen either way. And if you go back and listen to Traveling Wilburys, I think you'll like it. And Volume 3 was pretty good, too. It wasn't quite the same because there's no Roy. And I feel like the bloom was off the rose a little bit. They all kind of felt like they'd done it already. And it was more of a Tom Petty thing because he was just so hot at the time. But at any rate, we hope you enjoy it here. And we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you downloading and subscribing wherever you get your podcast. And folks, if you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor. Go in and give us a positive review. It really doesn't matter where you get your podcast. If you give us a positive review, it's just a huge help to us. It helps us find more rock and roll fans like you, help you grow the show, help us get better guests. And if we hear it or if we see it, if you send it to us, we may just read it on the show. So as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You tell us the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the rock properties that you want to hear us talk about on the show. Thanks, of course, to Pantheon Podcast for making us a part of the family. And thanks to our sponsors, RareVinyl.com, where I'm not sure if they have any Traveling Wheelberry stuff, but I know they got a ton of Beatles stuff. I know they've got Bob Dylan stuff. I know they've got ELO stuff. I bet they've got Roy Orbison and Tom Petty stuff. Go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, save 10% off anything you buy from any band. It's a great deal. Some fun stuff coming up on The Wolf that we can't wait to tell you about. But until then, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive.